It's time to jump into the brave new world of containers and Docker with Patrick Shanazin. This is Talk Python to Me, episode number nine, recorded Monday, May 4th, 2015. I'm a developer in many senses of the word because I make these applications, but I also use these verbs to make this music. I construct it line by line, just like when I'm coding another software design. In both cases, it's about design patterns. Anyone can get the job done. It's the execution that matters. I have many interests. Sometimes conflict. My creativity can usually be a benefit. But sometimes Hello, and welcome to Talk Python to Me a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy, and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpythontome.com. This episode, we'll be talking with Patrick Shanazin about Docker. Before we get to Patrick, I'm really excited to tell you that this episode is brought to you by CodeShip. CodeShip is a platform for continuous integration and continuous delivery as a service please take a moment to check them out at codeship.com or follow them on Twitter where they're at Codeship. Now let me introduce Patrick. Patrick Shanazin is a member of the technical staff at Docker Inc. He helps build Docker, an open platform for distributed applications for developers and sysadmins. Patrick is a software developer and storyteller. He has spent 10 years building platforms at Netscape and Sun, 10 more evangelizing platforms at Google, VMware, and Microsoft. His main professional interests is in building and kickstarting the network effects for these wondrous two-sided markets called platforms. He worked on platforms for portals, ads, commerce, social, web, distributed apps, and of course, the cloud. Patrick, welcome to the show. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm really glad that you're here, and I'm super excited to have Docker on the show. Ever since I learned about Docker, I you know there, there's a few times I've I've learned about some technology and it has completely taken over me and somehow I'm obsessed to learn it. And when I figured you know when I came across Docker, you know when you guys announced it, I know, was it a year ago, two it's about two years ago, right? And yeah, I came across it and I'm just oh my gosh, I need I need to learn this. I need to understand this because this is going to be huge and. I I really think Docker and these container technologies are going to change the way we build and deliver software. So let's start with uh, telling the world, what is Docker for those who don't know? Sure. Um, so Docker uh, is an open source project uh, that was announced by Solomon Haidt, uh, the founder of .cloud and Docker, uh, two years ago at PyCon. Uh, so it's relevant for Python developers because uh, it all started at PyCon. Uh, and so Solomon was, uh, and his team uh, were building this platform as a service called .cloud. Uh, and they were struggling uh, with adoption. It's a time when, at that time, I, I was at Google. I was doing a Google App Engine. Uh, there was Heroku, who's been bought by Salesforce. And so .cloud had trouble attracting developers to their uh, platform as a service, which allowed you to deploy applications in PHP, Python, and multiple languages. While at the time, a platform like Google App Engine, for example, was limited to Python and Java uh, as runtimes and, and Go as well. And so they were struggling with adoption, but they, they had this gem inside of .cloud that they were using to build their platform as a service uh, uh, that was called Docker. And that was uh, uh, an easy way to package uh, and distribute, build, ship, and run uh, Linux containers. 
And so they open sourced the project at PyCon two years ago, uh, and then it took the world by storm. Like all developers starting adopting it, and uh, the whole re the whole industry restructured around that notion of Linux container. Uh, so, so Docker essentially is a set of tools uh, that allow you to build, ship, and run distributed applications uh, based on Linux containers. So there's the Docker command line, uh, which is, uh, at the same time, it's a unique binary uh, that has a, a client and a daemon. And the, the daemon lets you um, get uh, images for containers on your local machine or on a server, uh, and run them in a Linux container, like isolated from other workloads on that machine. So you can have your own file system, your own users, your own network namespace. Uh, and so Docker is based on uh, um, Linux namespaces and C groups. Uh, and then you have Docker machine that lets you provision machines running uh, the Docker engine on any cloud provider, uh, like Google, Amazon, Microsoft, but also locally on your machine, on VMware, VirtualBox, uh, or Hyper-V. Uh, so Docker itself, Docker machine to provision the machines. Then there's another project called uh, Docker Compose that allows you to assemble all these containers that, that you're using to build your microservices into a single unit that you can run on your laptop for development or ship to the cloud uh, as a single unit. So typically you would have, for your typical Python app, maybe you're using Django or Flask, uh, you would have one container that has Django, uh, your Django application with its code in it, and you would link that to another container that has Redis or MySQL, uh, and, and then you can start all this with a, a single command, uh, Docker Compose. So you can, with Docker Compose, you can just start? Yes, exactly. So in Docker Compose, you say, I have my image for my Django app uh, that's called like Shanazon slash my Django app. Uh, and I want to launch that uh, with port um, 80 on the on the machine, on the server on which it's running, mapped to port uh, 8080 maybe internally where I'm running it. Uh, and then I want to tie that to a Redis instance uh, that's using the Docker image Redis that's on Docker Hub. Uh, and uh, And... And then inside of my code, I'm just going to refer to Redis and automatically it will just tie that to the other container uh, that's running. CodeShip is a hosted, continuous delivery service focused on speed, security, and customizability. You can set up continuous integration in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy when your tests have passed. CodeShip supports your GitHub and Bitbucket projects. You can get started with CodeShip's free plan today. Should you decide to go with a premium plan, TalkPython listeners can save 20% off any plan for the next three months by using the code TALKPYTHON, all caps, no spaces. Check them out at CodeShip.com and tell them thanks for sponsoring the show on Twitter where they're at CodeShip. So before we get into the details of how we run all that, you know, it's it's interesting that Docker kind of grew out of what was supposed to be kind of a larger project, right? A yep. platform as a service yep. company, if you will. It just it was just that was how you guys were trying to internally achieve greater density for your hosting. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, the, the notion of running Linux containers has been around for a really long time. Or actually, containers themselves have been around for a long time with uh, free BSD jails. Uh, in the like 2005, there, there was all, already the notion of uh, Solaris containers in Solaris. Uh, so that, that notion of containers existing for a long time. And that's the way Google is running its workloads uh, inside of uh, Google data centers uh, using Linux containers for isolation in order to be able to run a, uh, workloads with a very high density because it's using um, Linux or operating system virtualization, uh, operating system level virtualization as opposed to running on top of virtual machines. Right. So I think that's a super important difference or distinction to make between these containers and virtual machines. So if I create a virtual machine, maybe it's a couple of gigs for the file system and the operating system and all my data and everything I've done to it. Maybe it uses two gigs of RAM when I start and stop it. It's got to boot up like a regular machine. You know, it's it's a big blocky thing. How big are these Docker containers? Yeah, they can. So Docker containers compared to virtual machines can be much smaller. Uh, they, they can be big as well, but usually they're much smaller. Uh, and uh, another advantage they have over VMs is that um, the image format for Docker uh, images, uh, they are layered. So, so you build a layer, you, you can say, oh, I, I'm going to inherit from the Ubuntu layer, and then I'm going to install Python on that, and then uh, I'm going to use pip to install my requirements on that. Each of these instructions is a, generates a different layer, and when you're using the Docker pool to pull the image or Docker run to run that image, uh, what it's doing is that it's looking in, in its local cache to see, oh, hey, I have Ubuntu already in there. So I'm just going to download the image that adds uh, Python to it and then the one with the requirements for my app. Uh, so there, there's uh, an additional density in terms of storage as well that goes with it. While when you're packaging your app for a VM, you're just building that monolithic VM image with everything from the version of Linux or Windows that you're running in there, the full operating system, uh, plus your application code and packaging, and every VM you start has all these uh, data. While if you're running um, like 10 different Python um, applications packaged as a container on one host, you would have one, one time the data for the Ubuntu VM, that's your base, uh, and then maybe one layer for Python, and then small layers 10 times for the requirements uh, and the code base for your Python application. So the images are lighter, and what that means is that they download much faster. Another aspect is that at runtime it's much faster. So starting a container once your image is cached locally uh, just takes like a few milliseconds. Uh, well, uh, as you know, to start a VM, it takes uh, a good like twenty to thirty seconds in good cases. Yeah, that's that's really amazing, and I like the the layering concept. So every layer you add brings you closer and closer to the speci the specific type of operating system and environment you need for your app. So at first, it's just Linux. And that could be anything. Yeah. And then it's Linux plus your version of Python, and so it's a little closer. And then maybe it's that plus Nginx, and then it's a little closer, and then it's that version of Linux plus Python plus Nginx plus 
all the packages your web app depends upon. And then finally, maybe it's your code. And so you can use every one of those layers as a building block to, to create new ones and, and things like that, right? Yeah, it's very composable. So once you have started, uh, once you have created your base layer, uh, anybody in your team, or if you make it public on Docker Hub, uh, can inherit from that and add their own stuff. Uh, or you can go up in the chain of inheritance of layers and say, oh, I'm, I, I, I don't like the official Python layer. I'm going to see what operating system they're using to run it, and maybe I'm going to create my own. Uh, so you can branch off at any time. It's a very flexible system uh, that gives you total flexibility. And at the same time, to me, the big differentiation is that... Uh, uh, the speed aspect to it, to it, the, the, the fact that um, downloading images is much faster uh, because images are layered, and starting a container is like ten times or, or maybe a hundred times faster, depending on the cases. Uh, when you make things faster, usually it changes the experience, and, and that's what developers uh, uh, found or realize when they start, when a developer starts to use Docker, usually they have this aha moment, oh, then I can build all the time and create my own images and start breaking uh, my application that was monolithic into smaller microservices that are easier to compose with something like Docker Compose. So, so it goes hand in hand with uh, two big shifts in software engineering um, uh, that happened in the past five years. Uh, w one of them is uh, uh, microservices, the fact of breaking up your application into smaller services that can be scaled and developed independently. And the other one is DevOps, where dev teams and ops teams are, are working together with uh, continuous integration and continuous delivery uh, to using the same tools uh, to, to achieve continuous delivery of their application. Uh, and so the container is a really nice unit of collaboration between devs and ops. I think you're right that the size makes that really even even possible to some degree. I mean, so let me let me give you my mental model for the the DevOps story, and maybe maybe you can tell me how I have that slightly wrong or or improve on it or whatever. So, in in my mind, I'm thinking there's some developers building their app, and probably they have some kind of continuous integration set up where you know they check in, some automated build happens, some test run stuff like that. So I could build instead of just running my code directly, checking in and running my test directly on the say the build server. I could create a container, and when I do a check in, the build server could actually create one of these containers, push my code into it run that code in that actual container environment. And if I'm happy, maybe I could automatically push that out to some cloud provider. And and the thing that's actually running is the thing I tested and built locally. Yeah. yeah. So so there there's no uh, sort of environmental differences or anything like that. It's just that is the thing. I can actually ship almost the infrastructure. Yeah, I, I think you got it right. Uh, one, one of the things I would add is that uh, this kind of uh, factoring out of applications into microservices works really well uh, for people who follow the 12-factor app um, uh, manifesto that Heroku published a few years ago where uh, you try to build your apps as stateless as possible, uh, you run data services in a centralized way, uh, and then you configure the connectivity between different content or between different microservices with environment variables. And so typically what would happen is that you would run locally 
uh, as a developer on a single box with a test uh, MySQL container that has a volume attached with test data in there. Uh, and then when you just got pushed to a build server, the build server uh, deploys that into a cloud uh, QA environment where automated tests are deployed and then there the container would be tied to uh, test MySQL database that may, maybe is maintained by operations. So this is where the, the split between dev and operations happens where the devs specify all the requirements that they have for their app uh, in the container and then the ops are providing the right plugs to the right services in different environments. Uh, and then you eventually you would push that to production where uh, uh, the, uh, typically there would be a, uh, someone, a sysadmin, uh, that, that would decide, hey, th this build is ready to go to production. Uh, I'm just going to trigger the fact that in production the image is going to be pulled. It's the same image that I had on my dev box, but there it's configured to go to my um, production MySQL cluster. That's really that's really amazing. So, how do I deal with persistent data? Uh, you know, I've got this. Let's say I create one of these um, these Docker containers that contains like MongoDB. MongoDB has to have a data store somewhere on the file system. How do I kind of deal with inversion? That is that actually in the container? Is that is that somewhere else? How do I? You know, if, if the database schema changes. Yeah. As the new container comes up, what do I do? That that seems a little tricky. Yeah, 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 definitely. So Docker has this notion of volumes where in your container, you can mount um, a directory uh, that is on your host machine. And this is where you would keep the data. And typically, there's also another notion that is called a data container where you just launch a container that just has a volume attached to it and then you mount the volumes from that container into your runtime container. Uh, and then changing database, um, like from development to production, would just be a matter of changing the volume uh, or the container you're mounting your volume from. Uh, so that's the notion of volume uh, that lets you have persistent containers. There's one issue with it in Docker today uh, that uh, lots of people are running into when they try to deploy in clusters, uh, which is volumes can be attached only for uh, local file systems uh, on the engine on which you are triggered, on the host on which you are triggered. Uh, and uh, there's a, a company called ClusterHQ, which is building a, an add-on to Docker called Flucker. Uh, they, they, we're working with them to make it a plugin, like a real plugin in Docker, uh, so that there's work underway to make that happen right now. And what Flutter is doing is that they're addressing this issue of moving persistent container from one host to another if you're deploying in a large orchestrated uh, Docker setup, uh, where when you're when the orchestrator tells uh, the engine, "Hey, I want to move that Docker engine." That is tied to a uh, the Docker container that has a, a persistent volume from host A to host B. What they're doing is that they're they're using ZFS under the hood uh, and they're doing a ZFS snapshot, which are pretty fast. Then they're moving the snapshot to the other machine that can take a few hours. And once the snapshot is moved, they can start your server take a diff of the snapshot and push it on the other side, which, which is faster, and then they restart your container on the other side. 
That sounds really helpful because it seems like there's a lot of complexity. More and more containers that get involved, a more horizontal scale that gets in there. Yeah, yeah. Container persistence is really an interesting issue where there's lots of research right now and uh, lots of companies looking into that and how to enable this. Excellent. So you've spoken a little bit about Docker Hub. Can you can you tell the listeners what that is? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so Docker itself uh, is a, a client and a daemon that's running either on your local machine or on your server. But what you're building with the Docker client is uh, an image uh, of the system on which you're running. Once your image is ready, typically you would push it to Docker Hub, which is a hosted service by Docker. So it's software as a service. It's a hosted service that Docker uh, that lets you share your images either with the world, uh, you can make your image public, uh, or uh, and there are lots of open source and community images in there, uh, or you can host them privately, so uh, you can pay for having... A, so Docker Hub is free for public images, but if you want a private image, you can buy a subscription that allows you to have uh, several private images for your own projects. Uh, and then your colleague can just download the images from the hub as well, and it's integrated with a Docker client. Uh, we also have a version that's called Docker Hub Enterprise, that enterprises who want to adopt Docker for their internal workflow can install behind the firewall, so they have complete control over the policies for the images uh, that they're creating. Right, that makes sense. You might not want to just go grab a bunch of public images and download them. Now, is this actual source code or actual um, you know binary executables that I'm grabbing, or is there another way to like get an image from Docker Hub? Uh, so the what you grab from Docker Hub, the, these images are actually tables uh, that are gzipped for each of the layer with a bunch of metadata explaining the Docker engine how to reconstitute uh, the image of your operating system in there. Okay, excellent. So it might tell me you know, how to install Nginx or how to install Python 3 or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So we, we, we host uh, uh, official Docker images uh, for many open source projects. So, for example, for Python, there's an excellent... I, I used to take images from the community initially, and then I switched to the official image, uh, which is called Python. And so in order to run Python in Docker, you just say uh, Docker run Python, uh, eventually, you could qualify that to say if you want Python 2 or Python 3, or there are labels uh, on these images that let you specify a more fine-grained version of Python. And once you run the image, it comes with a, uh, a I don't remember which flavor of Linux, and then a Python all installed with the tools for developing there or for running uh, Python workloads. That sounds like a really easy way to get started for for the Python developers. That's cool. Yeah, and that's that's one of the uh, that's one of the things that I love. So I joined Docker uh, just uh, two months ago. Uh, before that, I was at Microsoft, where my role uh, as part of the um, developer experience team uh, was to bring all the Docker partner ecosystem on Azure. Uh, and so, as part of doing that, I built a bunch of tools uh, to deploy clusters on Azure. And, and the tool I built for that was in Python. And I interacted with lots of startups using Python. Uh, and when I started talking about my tool to other Microsoft people, and I started giving trainings about that, these guys were on Windows, they didn't have Python installed. They said, how do I run that script? Uh, and in order to make that easier, I just bundled all my script uh, in, a, in a Docker image uh, and I just told them, hey, you just run that image and you'll have 
uh, Python 2 installed, all the requirements for the tool that I built, uh, like the Azure Python SDK, all pre-installed, and you don't need to install anything. It's just a Docker run away from, uh, um, from running. That's really cool. It sounds like an interesting world to live in, working with a lot of the Windows stuff. And actually, one of the things I kind of like to talk about in a minute is uh, the Docker view from different operating systems. I mean, if I'm on Linux, it makes perfect sense. It's kind of like a Linux thing. I can run Docker right on Ubuntu, things like that. Yeah. But if I'm on, say, let's say on my Mac, what, what do I do there? Yeah, so on a Mac, uh, you can download an installer from uh, docker.com. Uh, so we always release all our versions on, uh, on Linux, Mac, and Windows. Uh, and so you download that installer, and what um, what is doing, because the engine uh, relies on primitives in the Linux kernel, it needs to run on Linux. And so we have this tool that's downloaded as part of the installer that's called boot to docker uh, that starts behind the scene a VirtualBox VM uh, running Linux where the engine is installed, and then you run the client on your Mac and, and your client is targeting that VirtualBox instance. And then by changing the environment variables, uh, uh, you can just target, instead of targeting your local machine, uh, your local VirtualBox instance on your Mac, uh, you can target a box in Azure or uh, Google Compute Engine or uh, or Amazon, uh, so that's pretty easy. Yeah, uh, in terms of operating system, one of the things that I, I, I'm super happy about that happened, uh, that was launched uh, a few weeks ago and that was announced at, uh, at the Build conference uh, last week from Microsoft, is that Microsoft like really bet heavily on Docker and what they've done is that they they have contributed a lot of code to Docker so that now the Docker client runs on Windows. So you can run the Docker client and then target uh, Linux machines. You can use boot to Docker on Windows as well. So you can run your Linux workloads on Windows with that and develop. Uh, That's cool. So that kind of puts it on par with OS X maybe. Yeah, exactly. Puts it on par with OS X, but they're going even further where what they announced uh, at, at Build last week, Mark Rusinovich, uh, who's uh, the CTO for Azure, uh, he, he spotted a Docker t-shirt and he demoed uh, the step further that they went, which is they implemented a Docker engine for Windows Server. Uh, so that, that's really a big news. They, uh, Microsoft liked so the Docker workflow for devs and ops so much that they wanted to give that to Windows developers and uh, Windows sysadmins. Uh, so they, they modified Windows Server so that you, to have the same isolation primitive that exists in Linux, and then they implemented the Docker daemon in terms of that. So that's not out yet. They just gave a demo last week, uh, but it's going to ship with the, window, the next version of Windows Server, and there will be a preview this summer. So that means that you'll be able to develop uh, .NET applications uh, running on Windows Server uh, in, inside of Docker containers which means that for developers and sysadmins in enterprise who are typically working half and half with Java and .NET, uh, they'll be able to, uh, uh, to, to just deploy their, uh, or to build their microservices in the technology that fits the best. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. I'm glad you brought that up. I was watching the Build conference last week as well, and just for the listeners because of time shifting. We're recording on Monday, May 4th. And build, I think this was announced last Wednesday, so four or five days ago. And one of the very first things 
they announced that the entire conference was your CEO, Ben Golub, coming out and saying, you know, from Docker saying, look, we're working with Microsoft doing amazing things. And we started out maybe trying to bring it on par with OS 10, but the Microsoft guys wanted to go even farther and actually add features to Windows, the, the OS, that would allow it to have containers for its operating system and its processes. Because until this moment, there was no possibility of something like Docker on Windows for Windows apps. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty incredible. So, I mean, to me, that means like now we have the two major operating systems that run software and the servers in the data centers, both supporting containers, both working with Docker. And that's a huge boost for you guys, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is definitely. And I think it's very good for the Windows ecosystem as well. Uh, because it will bring them the same kind of tools that uh, uh, Linux developers and admins have been enjoying for a long time. And it, it really allows for more dense workloads on your servers and in the data center. Yeah, that's really cool. So the DevOps story just gets way better over there, I think. Yeah, exactly. So I'd like to talk a little bit about Python with you. But before we do, what do you think the future holds for Docker and containers? Where are things going in this whole world? Yeah, so we have DockerCon, which is our big conference uh, that's happening uh, in June. And one of the things we've been working on, as I explained uh, to you before, there are uh, Docker takes care of a lot of aspects, but it still needs to mature in lots of areas. And uh, especially when people start putting it in production, uh, there are lots of needs that are still unfulfilled by the tool. So one of the big aspects that we've been working on recently to make is to make it pluggable. Uh, so we're working on a plug-in model uh, with people like Weave who are building virtual networking uh, or Cluster HQ who are building portable volumes so that they can run as plug-in uh, in Docker Engine and so that you would be able to define uh, networks for your containers that span your uh, your personal your, your own data center and maybe Azure and Google, uh, or like two public clouds. So that, that's on the Weave side, and on the cluster issue side, it's like moving volumes from one to the other. Uh, we're also working on uh, making sure Docker machine lets you provision Docker demons everywhere. Uh, there's been lots of improvement to Docker Compose. Uh, and also, one of the big topics that's happening right now is once you start building all your apps as microservices running in containers, the next step is how do you orchestrate them? And there's a, I have a whole deck on that that I'd send you uh, uh, where there's at least six or seven contenders in that space. Uh, uh, again, uh, as, I, as I used to say, the, the whole industry reorganized around this. Before, people were building platform as, as a service, and that whole industry refocused towards uh, orchestrating Docker containers. So the unit now is uh, the microservice package as a container. And in the orchestrators, you have Docker Swarm, which is uh, one from Docker itself. So it's a native orchestration solution that works multi-cloud. Uh, there's Kubernetes from Google that's inspired uh, by what's running internally at Google, and that's open source. Uh, there's Apache Mesos, uh, done by Mesosphere, uh, and they're running in production in lots of different places. They're coming from Twitter originally. I think Netflix runs it as well. Uh, and there are uh, smaller players like DS uh, or Tutum, which is running on Azure as well. Uh, so there, there's lots of activity in that space of uh, Docker container orchestration. Yeah, that seems like where the real challenges lie. And if that gets easier and easier, then 
you know, yeah, the sky's the limit. That so that's amazing. Yeah, on the Docker side, we're trying to make the whole experience easier. Uh, like with machines, like one command to provision new machines in different clouds, and then it's integrated with Swarm, so you can say, oh, I want all these machines to be in a single cluster. Uh, and then with Docker Compose, you can say, oh, I want to, uh, or there, there's the start of an integration where you can say, my app that's composed of multiple services, please deploy that to that Swarm instance. Uh, and then it will just provision it in the right place in the cluster where there's some room. So we're really trying to make the experience much easier for developers and sysadmins. Cool. Yeah. The more you guys encourage and make it easy to break our apps into small little services, then the challenge becomes linking them together, right? So it sounds sounds like you're doing some great work there. Fantastic. Yeah. And one advantage I would have to add that there is to this microservice approach and that Docker enables uh, is once you start breaking your app in microservices, you can start innovating in terms of uh, what language and platform you're using for each of the microservices. So as opposed to being stuck, for example, with a Django app running in Python 2.7, uh, and you made that choice and there's some legacy code that cannot be ported to Python 3, uh, you could say, oh, I just break my app in 10 different microservices, and for this microservice, I don't have any legacy, I'm going to write it in Python 3. Uh, and, and for the developer, it's just a matter of saying, oh, I'm inheriting from Python uh, column 3 as opposed to Python column 2 uh, when you're creating your image. Oh, that's that's really neat. So maybe it's it's a gateway for a little more flexibility in the technology you choose. Yeah, and I think for especially for the Python community where that, that, uh, that big, big gap between Python 2 and Python 3 developers happen, uh, I think this breaking up of large monolithic applications into smaller microservices where you have more freedom to test new stuff uh, may be a good way of introducing Python 3 to your environment. For sure. Do you see anything like that happening in the data side of things? So, you know, if I'm using MySQL and relational databases in some big monolithic way, like, could I, could my different microservices be using like NoSQL, say MongoDB or Redis here and there, and then maybe one other part still using a relational database? Oh, yeah, I've seen a lot of that where uh, people are starting. Well, once your microservices, uh, your microservice has a smaller footprint and uh, like a single functional goal, uh, then it's easier to say, oh, I'm going to back that up with Redis or MongoDB uh, as opposed to storing everything in MySQL. Uh, because maybe I'm building an e-commerce application and I need the relational aspect uh, for parts of it, uh, but maybe for like tracking um, referrals or uh, the social media aspect of how people are tweeting about products on my website, maybe these small services can use uh, different types of uh, databases or data backends. Yeah, that seems like a perfect perfect way to choose the right database, the right job there. Yeah. Cool. So you guys, um, do you use Python internally? You know, obviously you can run Python in Docker containers really well, but do you guys use it as a language for yourself? Uh, actually, we do. Uh, not everybody. So Docker itself is written in uh, Go, uh, as well as Docker Machine and Swarm. Uh, but Docker Compose uh, is uh, is actually written in Python, so it's a Python project. Nice, and how's that? People are pretty happy with Python internally? Yeah, and I think uh, they even tried to call it to go at some point, uh, but then they said, hey, we have high velocity with Python, uh, we have a code base that people understand well, so let's uh, stick with that. Uh, 
so, so I think from those for now, we'll stay in Python and, uh, and the developers who are working on it are pretty happy with it. Yeah, that's really cool. So if, you know, I'm a listener and I'm out there hearing this and this, I'm like, this is awesome. I have to get started. What do I do? How do I get started? Yeah, to get started, uh, you go to uh, docker.com. We have lots of tutorials. If you're on a Mac, you just download Docker for Mac, for Linux. Depending on the distro, either there are packages or you can download the binaries directly. And for Windows, there's an installer as well. Uh, there's also another project you may want to take a look at that's called Kitematic. Uh, that one runs only on macOS, uh, and it's uh, it's a Docker client GUI. Uh, so it shows you all the containers that you can find on Docker Hub, and you can say, oh, just start this one, launch a terminal where I can script it or connect to it, uh, and it shows you the logs, uh, the volume that you have attached, so you can go edit the files and all that. Uh, so that that's a very easy way to get started, Kitematic, uh, I would say. Uh, and else? Yeah, I have Kitematic installed, and I, I enjoy it. It's nice. Yeah. It's clean and, and works well. Yeah, there's lots of stuff to add in there, uh, but it's, it's really a good start, and it's very easy to get started. Excellent. So I think I think it's probably a, a place to call it a show, Patrick. What what else would you like to add while we while we got a chance to talk to everyone? I, I mean, thanks very much for the opportunity. I, uh, uh, I really encourage Python developers to go take a look at that. Uh, to me, one of the angles that the most interesting for Python developers is uh, giving you the portability for your customers to run your code anywhere without having uh, like a complicated environment to set up. Uh, as long as they have Docker, they can just start your, your app package as a container. And the other angle that's, I think, pretty important is uh, starting to introduce Python 3 uh, microservices into your app uh, if all your apps are, as, are packaged as containers, uh, it just doesn't matter. Uh, you don't need to set up complicated environments. It's just a, a change of the label in the from uh, uh, in the from directive in your Docker file uh, to start using Python three. I am very excited about Docker and this whole container world, and I appreciate you taking the time to share it with everyone. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome, Patrick. Bye. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest was Patrick Shanazin, and this episode has been sponsored by Codeship. Please check them out at codeship.com and thank them on Twitter via at Codeship. Don't forget the discount code for listeners. It's easy. Talk Python, all caps, no spaces. Remember, you can find the links from this show at talkpythontome.com slash episodes slash show slash nine. And if you're feeling generous, please check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash mkennedy to contribute and support the show. And be sure to subscribe to the show. Visit the website and choose subscribe in iTunes or grab the episode RSS feed and drop it into your favorite podcatcher. You'll find both at the footer of every page. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks for listening. Stating with my voice, there's no norm that I can feel within. Haven't been sleeping, I've been using lots of rest. I'll pass the mic back to who rocked it best. Oh, first.